And with us now from the Wellington studio this evening, Colin Peacock from Media Watch, his weekly catch-up here on nights. Kia ora, Colin. Kia ora, Mark. Yes, I've dodged the drooping and plunging street lamps of Wellington to safely be with you in the Wellington studio tonight. <laughs> Are you looking up as you walk down the street these days, just making Always. sure you don't have to catch something? <laughs> Always. I'm looking sideways because I ride a bike, so I'm looking for the cars on my left and my right, the parked cars, the moving cars. Now I have to look up as well for the plunging street oh, lamps, which uh, poke out you know, into the little part of the road where you... Yes. Ride your bike on the left, so yeah, uh, yeah. full full alertness at all times. I'm <laughs> well, not afraid. Well, Colin, last week the Prime Minister announced new rules on lobbying in the wake of Guy and Espiner's RNZ series uh, that exposed the lack of oversight on on the trade. How has that story evolved since then? It has involved in some interesting ways. And forgive me if it seems a bit like last week's story in a way, but last week when you talked to Hayden on Midweek Media Watch, you had Trump had been arrested. And I think the TVNZ boss had quit the day day before or the day before that. And there was so much going on, we didn't really talk about this. So let's just wind back a bit to last week. So the Prime Minister at his regular weekly post-Cabinet press conference announced uh, some immediate changes as a result, uh, clearly, of the exposure of um, RNZ and Guy Nespiner's series on lobbying. Uh, And then, first up, he said the privilege of swipe card access for many professional lobbyists at Parliament would end. Where there are real questions at the moment is where where the lobbying is taking place for a fee and where there's a perception that some people who can afford to pay that fee are getting access to decision makers that others are not. Just through what somebody can do with a lobbyist swipe pass at the current... It, it gets them into the building and it gets them into some parts, of, mostly public parts of the building. It doesn't get them into the parts, is my understanding, doesn't get them into, say, a minister's office, for example. They'd still have to be invited in uh, and access that separately. So why, I mean, I know you're doing all of this in a review. What's the point of these then? Um, that's a very good question. I mean, my view is that they can come through security the same as everybody else does. So lobbyists having their own entry cards, which has been standard practice, it's been going on for years. So it's all changed now because Guy on brought that to light. I think so. And it's quite a remarkable and rapid result. You don't often see a a government or prime minister act uh, quite so quickly on on something as a result of a piece of journalism. Incidentally, uh, in the weekend, Herald, they had a bit of a laugh about um, those lobbyists having to queue up like everybody else at the regular entrance uh, for Jacinda Ardern's farewell uh, festivities at, at Parliament. Uh, they were spotted there, and I think the, <laughs> the journalists enjoyed enjoyed that a little bit. But look, the bigger picture stuff, uh, no action will be taken yet on that so-called revolving door between the government uh, and the lobbying business. Um, Guyan also described it as the cooling off period. I think that's what it's referred to overseas. So still at the moment, nothing to stop a cabinet minister or a former sort of political staffer going straight into the the lobbying business, such as the former broadcasting minister, Chris Farfoy, did last year, almost no break. So the Ministry of Justice uh, has been asked by the Prime Minister to review this. It'll take a while. Um, And in the meantime, Chris Hipkins did also push forward the idea of a voluntary agreement uh, whereby lobbyists can publicly disclose in some sort of register who they represent, but uh, all that somewhere in the future. But the swipe card thing took, took place immediately. And it intersects with the media, doesn't it, really? Because some lobbyists appear as commentators. You know, that's one of the things that Guy and Series actually pointed out. Yes, yes, he did. And uh, this week, Guy and spoke a bit more about that uh, on the New Zealand Herald's uh, daily podcast called The Front Page. And look, he in previous interviews he's given with other media about this, he spoke quite frankly about 
lobbyists being part of the media ecosystem and uh, as commentators and pundits. But he also said, you know, journalists interact with him and he himself and others, his peers, uh, back in his days as a political editor, uh, had he'd accepted some of their blandishments and corporate boxes at sports events and that sort of thing. But what he was saying really was that lobbyists, you know, communicate with advisors and ministers' office, you know, messaging them directly sometimes. And he told the front page podcast, you know, I found this quite interesting, that that some MPs told him that they had absolutely no knowledge or experience of being lobbied like this or how it works, which I think just goes to show that it really is the government ministers, the policy makers who are really targeted uh, by these professional lobbyists. So has Guyan commented on this, uh, these changes that uh, Chris Hipkins has announced? Is, I mean, is he pleased with that result? Well, I think he, he must be because he's had a bit of a result already and now there is this uh, review and train and it's been talked about. The opposition have talked about it as well. But here's what he said um, on that uh, New Zealand Herald podcast, the front page uh, earlier this week. I think symbolically this white card one is, is quite a good one for him to target because it sticks in people's mind, doesn't it? That, oh, these people can get into Parliament whenever they want rather than going in through the front door. But it would still leave us well behind most countries. That's just a fact. That's not a debating point. That's a fact. So will these changes stick now if uh, National gets into power, if the government changes later this year? Yeah, that's an interesting one. And it seems so, uh, because the National Party has also said it wants this cooling off period um, introduced, and it also backs this idea of a register. Um, So you would know, for example, which of the professional government relations companies uh, are are working for which clients. Um, So also on that same edition of the Front Page podcast, they reported uh, what National's Deputy Nicola Willis had to say um, with a a bit of a a slick podcast-style soundtrack in in the background. National thinks there should be a stand-down period of 12 months after any minister leaves government. They shouldn't be hired by a lobbying firm the next day with access to politicians. There should be a 12-month stand-down and we want to stop that revolving door. We'd also like to see a transparent, publicly accountable register of who's doing the lobbying and who they're lobbying for. So have we heard anything from the lobbyists themselves? Have they commented on this? And I guess would that register address Guyon's other point that um, lobbyists should have to declare any specific conflict of interest if they had at any given time? Yeah, particularly if they're commenting in the media. Some are media friendly and like to do this. Some like to work in the background. But no, they've, by and large, they've had very little to say about it, uh, which is understandable perhaps. Um, but it's a bit of a shame. One who did, though, was um, Bridget Morton. Uh, she was a, a National Business Review columnist. Now, she actually made a distinction here. She says that she's she's a lawyer uh, for the Franks Ogilvy Company, but they've been hired by, um, I think, parties uh, with an interest or a vested interest or a stake in things like Three Waters, for example. So it sounds a little bit like lobbying or representation to me. However, she does draw that distinction. But she says, look, this RNZ series, um, this is what she wrote in the NBR, did not ask why organisations feel they need to pay lobbyists. Um, who has increased access to the government, whether there's any wider benefit from lobbyists. These were things that, that weren't really um, addressed. So she says, as the government grows so do the levels of bureaucracy and it becomes increasingly difficult for people outside that Wellington system or the the Beltway as people like to call it to understand exactly who is responsible for something, how you untangle a problem lobbyists can provide that 
And uh, she also said when she did work as a lobbyist, she said she spent about a year doing what she believes to be lobbying work. Uh, she said, as it was a bit like Guyan's point earlier, she was amazed at how many people didn't understand the difference between a minister and a mere member of parliament, let alone say a manager or a deputy secretary um, in a minister's office. Uh, she said, there are people I interacted with were some of the brightest minds, these are her words, driving our economy, but they simply didn't have time to turn their minds to working with government and, and, and who, who needed to be contacted. So she says, if we want government and the community working closer together, we shouldn't be creating any artificial barriers between them. So that's that's her view. Um, but one one example uh, of the lobbyists who featured actually quite a lot in Guy and Series with Neil Jones, mm-hmm. co-owner of, of the, the firm Capital. Um, he's frequently on Nine to Noon's politics panel. Now, on Tuesday, normally that's on a Monday, but because of Easter it was on Tuesday. So yesterday, as we're speaking, uh, Neil was on it, I think, for the first time since Guy and Series came out. So I listened in to see if anything would be said about it. He was appearing alongside another um, chief of staff. Uh, that was um, Tim Hurdle. But uh, Susie Ferguson, uh, the host, uh, just quickly, about three minutes in, uh, felt she needed to sort of give this uh, explanation. Mm. I should also have your disclaimers. Tim Hurdle, a former National Party advisor and also was campaign director for National at the 2020 election. Neil Jones, who's also with us, was chief of staff to Labour leader Jacinda Ardern. And prior to that, chief of staff to Andrew Little and is the director of public affairs firm Capital. Right. Let's also talk uh, about the situation with Te Whatu Ora. Yeah, so that was pretty much you know, stock standard, what they do uh, in the declarations of, of their their. Their, their positions and I thought there was a bit of an opportunity there. It was a shame that um, that, that uh, they didn't take the chance to actually ask Neil a bit about that or maybe even yeah. put him on the spot about individual clients. He, he might have had that may have been relevant but uh, I think it's, it's just up to them to disclose it or avoid discussions of issues where they've got a direct um, conflict or a client that um, yeah puts them in conflict with that. Have others in the media followed up on this? Yeah, a little bit. So also on um, that front page podcast, uh, Georgina Campbell, uh, the Herald journalist, was the host of it uh, this week. She asked Guyan in that interview, look, Guyan, isn't this all about Beltway? You know, honestly, most people don't really care about who's swiping into Parliament or who's influencing whom. But Guyan was saying, no, no, this really is about fairness, ensuring that the playing field isn't tilted to those who can afford to hire people who can command the attention of politicians and know exactly who to go to among their staff. And that question of Georgina's about, look, really this is Beltway, it's not uh, a matter for ordinary folks uh, to stress about, was echoed by um, Joe Moyer, political editor of Newsroom. Now, Newsroom has a new weekly uh, podcast called Raw Politics, which is funded uh, by us, by the public, through the Public Interest Journalism Fund, interestingly. And um, on last week's uh, edition, uh, so Friday this came out, Joe Moyer gave this opinion of Chris Hipkins' announcements about um, changing the rules for lobbyists. Um, I don't know. I, I just think it's one of those things where Chris Hipkins probably could have held his nerve for another week, and I think that this stuff might have actually kind of disappeared a little bit, and he could have actually just let it go and done nothing. Um, I was surprised that he decided to react in the way that he did because given the whole sort of, you know, we're a bread and butter government now and we're not going to be distracted by anything, this is an incredibly Beltway issue to be getting distracted by. So she's basically saying, was it really worth all the effort of changing things? Yeah, I think so. Either that or that he should just focus on other stuff, as she said there. Um, So she seemed to be seeing it 
through his eyes just as a political strategy calculation, not really pondering whether this was the right or just thing to do, not worrying, worrying about that playing field being tilted, as Guyan was saying, or alternatively, that in fact lobbyists like Brigitte Morton said earlier in the NBA can actually be an instrument that it evens it up um, and uh, and provides expertise where, where, where it could really be best directed because other people just don't have time to worry about who's the right person to approach. Um, so, yeah, it, it, her colleague, actually, Sam Sashdeva, on the same podcast from Newsroom, didn't agree with Joe. Um, and he was saying, look, it's, it's more than a Beltway issue. And even if, you know, so-called voters, as we're often described, I like to think of us as citizens, not just people who vote once every three years. But he was saying, uh, look, if this does become something, an exercise people or an issue that's thrown up in an election campaign, Chris Hipkins, says Sam, can now point to it and say, look, I, I saw there was something needed. I acted quickly, you know, uh, when that series brought stuff to light. So I, I have done something. But again, I think that's that's just a, a political strategy calculation. And, uh, you know, I don't I just don't think that's the right or most helpful way um, to, to look at the issue. Because in the same way that there may be people working in public life who don't know how to effectively represent themselves and, and don't know who to approach in government to have effective kind of influence. Well, you know, citizens won't know that either and um, would like people on their behalf to be making good decisions about fairness and justice and political influence and policy making. So, yeah, I'm not sure that's quite the response that Guy and the um, RNZ in-depth team would be hoping for from other journalists for, as a result of this series. But one other commentator, I think, was did make a good point. That's Gordon Campbell, longtime journalist and commentator, columnist. He said, look, honestly, look at Australia's code. We should just copy that. It's comprehensive hints of it works, uh, just just copy it wholesale. But he also made a separate point, Mark. He said, something I hadn't really thought about, he says, it seems incredible to me, New Zealand courts can require a media celebrity to respect the restraint of trade period before starting a new media job, but no such rules appear to cabinet ministers mm. or senior public servants. And that is a reference to Tova O'Brien, who was uh, restrained by her former employers at TV3 or Discovery, the current owners, last year when she tried to join MediaWorks and Today FM. And I think that actually is a point about lobbyists and politicians and that revolving door that will um, chime with a few journalists. Mm. Now, the PM has also been under pressure to tighten up uh, compliance with the Official Information Act after the Stuart Nash affair. He's also had to respond to journalists' concerns about that lately. Yeah, so Stuart Nash dismissed from Cabinet after um, Stuff published details of an email that he sent to campaign donors. Remember, that was uh, revealing internal Cabinet discussions, big Uh, no-no. Again, that was the newsroom political staff that were after that. They requested it in written correspondence. Uh, It was withheld from them. Uh, They were told it was out of scope. So the Ombudsman will now look at that, uh, and that will take some time. But Chris Hipkins, the Prime Minister, played this down initially sort of saying that, I'm paraphrasing here really, but saying that the, the, it was an oversight. Um, it was a busy time, a poor call was made, and uh, this was just a mistake. Now, that, that won't satisfy journalists who for years have griped about the spirit of, of the OIA not being followed or, or the letter of it. Um, and, you know, they'll say, look, it's really, really not good enough for on one of the rare occasions that you know, that something was unjustifiably withheld and they find out about it. When that comes to light, it's just not going to say, oh, look, it was a busy time and a staffer made a mistake, won't happen again. You know, some are are even suggesting now uh, that it's time for penalties because this sort of thing has gone on too long. Legal penalties. Now, that, that does have problems because you might end up with 
scapegoating and blame shifting and so on, junior staffers somehow being made uh, to to carry the can for these sorts of mistakes if there are penalties to be applied. Uh, but it's interesting that now the, the temperature is going up and, and having a look at that. Um, and with that in mind, it was an interesting series actually out this week that shows just how hard, or shine, puts it really in sharp relief, how hard it is to get information which ought to be routinely available. And this is on a big topic of health. Always a contentious area, health, of course, as it should be, I guess. But tell us about that. What, what was it about? Well, this project is um, another one funded through the Public Interest Journalism Fund, uh, which is running out uh, shortly. Um, and this is by the, the business news organisation Business Desk, uh, which is a subscriber um, a site, really. So uh, it's called the Business of Health. And what they're trying to do there is sort of lift the lid on the huge amount that gets spent on health, uh, public funds, and, and where it all goes. So two journalists doing the heavy lifting on this. One's Victoria Young, who previously worked at the National Business Review, and then Cecile Meyer, who is an experienced, um, I think, Christchurch-based former uh, staff uh, business and health reporter um, who was hired by Business Desk last year. So what was the purpose of this investigation? Well, they bill it as uh, well. The, the, these are the, the the words at the top of the um, the page on online. So, who is making money out of health? Much has been written about the sector's workforce, the nurses, doctors, etc., who keep the healthcare system ticking over. Uh, in this project, we'll seek out answers about how all this really works. But it's run into huge roadblocks trying to find out where the money goes. So they write, uh, we expect that it might be tricky to get financial information from the private sector because GPs, for example, have no obligation to open up their mm-hmm. books. Um, but we thought that the government would share information and should do on its um, huge health budget, roughly $30 billion, uh, in the in the current calendar year, you know, being spent uh, and, and what value we're getting out of it. But they're having trouble uh, even when they put in those um, those official requests. So in other words, no response to their Official Information Act requests? Well, some, but not, not a lot. So the yeah. problems are set out in a pretty stark piece called um, What We Did Not Learn from Te Whatu Ora. Uh, so they say between August and November, we sent out a huge number of requests under the OIA to the Health Ministry, Former DHBs uh, that are, I guess, being disbanded in, in Tafatu Ora. Um, they say there were 18 sent to Tafatu Ora, for example, for this. Three were answered within the 20 day deadline. Um, a full or partial response to nine others were delayed up to 16 weeks. We're still waiting for a response on five more. Uh, no explanation, they say, for why some of these requests have not been answered. Mm-hmm. Tafatu Ora, it's a new agency, isn't it? But, and it's taken over the functions of the, the DHBs all around the country. Mm. Should. Should media you know, give them a break, cut some slack over those requests uh, if they come in at uh, such a rate of knots? And, of course, the deadlines as well? Yeah, possibly. I mean, it, it, I believe it has something like about 80,000 employees uh, or will have when everything's fully integrated. Tavati Ora said, according to um, the business desk's own reporting, uh, that it's received more than 1,900 OA requests in the first six months of the agency's existence, which is a lot more than... I would have guessed they say we're trying our best to to meet uh, and uh, the response times and do effective compliance, um, and they say they work tirelessly to respond to this huge volume of requests while we're still also recruiting to fully resource the team. But um, business desk Cecile Meyer was still minded to kind of put that to the test. So how did she do that? Well, she 
asked Te Whatu Ora under the OIA, uh, and I think this is more journalists are doing this when they experience frustration with the OIA, having put in a request and not got satisfaction. They'll often ask, okay, I would like now all the information about the handling of my request, as well as the actual information at source I was requesting. So she's asked them to set out its communications budget, its staffing numbers and pay, and its use of PR consultants, and that has been a hot topic recently with uh, the National Party saying they want to cut back on consultants and save, I think, $400 million a year uh, to fund uh, a lot of other public policy. So uh, that's interesting that they would do that. So Cecile Meyer on the, the, the team for the Business of Health project says uh, the response to this was due before Christmas, but the deadline was extended to January the 31st this year. Uh, then uh, they said the response would be sent by March the 3rd, which became the March the 31st. We're still waiting for it now. So uh, frustration, I think, for her, because I guess you've set up a series, you want to be publishing the results, and uh, it's really not coming through fast enough to, to be effective with those deadlines in mind. They're not thinking if you just ignore this uh, request uh, that might just go away. <laughs> I mean, it was at the end of the road for it. I don't think so, because Cecile's done what a lot of journalists have done when the, the delays are unexplained or, in their mind, unjustified. They push them on to the ombudsman. Um, so she's asking for any communication sent since uh, the middle of last year about the handling of media inquiries. So that will be interesting what what they get back. But again, she says we're still waiting for a response to that as well. So I guess you've got to play the long game with all of this. But in the background, uh, as they point out themselves in their stories, Rob Campbell, in that furore over his sacking from the agency, um, he has since said uh, that there are more than 200 such people, um, comms people, to deal with this stuff and that PR firms are also being called in to sell the Tafatu Ora message better. Those are his words. And I think in Parliament uh, last month, the Health Minister, Aisha Verrill, uh, said uh, when quizzed that there were 173 communication staff as well as at least 26 contractors. So that's practically the 200 right there. So sounds to me like enough to be able to respond to, you know, significant mm-hmm. and genuine media inquiries. And I guess what sort of detail does the business desk investigation actually want? Mm, yeah, good point. So what they really want, I think, is to see what the biggest contracts are. That's a big part of it. So I don't know if you recall last year that, or maybe the year before, there were big uh, rows about the quality of hospital food. Mm. And so two examples they've cited at Business Desk was Compass Group that supplies uh, catering to hospitals, a British-based multinational, thousands of meals a day, multi-million dollar long-term contracts, and big profit margins. There's another company called ISS, uh, which is a global company that has, uh, according to Business Desk, more than 350,000 employees in 30 countries. So that's huge. does cleaning services as well in the health sector. And Cecile Meyer reported that, um, she said there's one DHB, don't know which one, but that saved millions of dollars when it took its hospital catering back in-house after it ended uh, a contract with that firm Compass. Uh, so she said they're asking Tafatu or which other districts do their own catering how are these food services run? How are they saving money? So if they can get details on that, um, that could be really, really interesting. And there's more. They're, they're researching you know, the mental health services. Remember, there was, I think, $900 million uh, to that, which um, had been either not spent or not, not effectively spent so far. So a lot for them to dig into. Mm. Now, Business Desk, it's an online outlet, isn't it? For, 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 so you basically you pay a subscription for that. So if you can't afford that, you can't see the investigation, presumably. Is that right? 
If, yeah, effectively so, but well, no, because this is a because it's a publicly funded project from right. the Public Interest Journalism Fund. They do make that available online for free, so no paywall for right. that as there would be with their other content. However, you know, you wouldn't go to Business Desk if you weren't very often if you weren't a subscriber, most probably to, to be able to see the content. However, these days, Business Desk is owned by NZME, uh, yeah. so it sits alongside the Herald's own business um, section and content. So that may be one way of actually getting a bit more exposure for it. Of course, the Herald also has its own digital paywall uh, for some of its, its stuff. Uh, but also, uh, interesting thing is you can go to the Business Desk uh, site, follow Victoria Young, who I think is in charge of that um, Business of Health project. If you follow her, you'll get all the articles emailed to you uh, for free as part of the series. So that's mm. what I've done, and uh, I'll keep up with it and see what they get in dribs and drabs via the, uh, the Official Information Act. Now, next question. This is intriguing, this um, wonderful series, which I have been watching. And uh, no spoiler alerts, please. Well, make sure you <laughs> don't give anything away here, Colin. Um, yes. It's Succession, of course, which is based on Rupert Murdoch and his family, dysfunctional family. Um, and, well, it's coming to an end, the series, the final series. Uh, have you seen it yourself? No, I think I'm the last person in media that has. I'm so glad that you have. You're in uh, but the as media, you say, for goodness sake. I know, I know, I know. I've seen a, <laughs> I've seen a couple because Prime Television, uh, with their hookup with Sky, yes. obviously the same owners, they put some of the older series that everybody had seen and talked yeah. about on, on Prime. I, so I watched a couple, but I just wasn't able to follow up on it. I will I will get there because uh, I like Matthew McFadden. I think he's a terrific actor. Oh, and, um, Tom, yeah, yeah he's great. And the, the, the compla- and the lots and lots of swearing. Love that too. Happy to see uh, bad language. And uh, now that my kids are older, I can get away with um, playing that out loud on the big TV in the living room. So all good. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I do feel like the only person in the media industry who um, hasn't actually seen it. But uh, I, I did laugh about the LA Times because they did. Uh, so I guess in the current episode, so this yeah, is a spoiler is I'm going to get a, a character passes away so the LA Times did an obituary for this character um, as if it was a a real person who died even put an editor's note on it saying this obituary is for a fictional character from season 4 episode 3 of Succession it has been updated with a statement from his fictional children which is I think (laughs) taking it a little bit far so you read it as though it was a genuine article uh, obituary as you would uh, standard in any newspaper but of course the character was completely fictitious but you would have thought it would have spoiled the surprise for LA Times readers who you know, didn't want to know, hadn't seen the episode. Well, I guess it's all in the timing, but it turns out that, uh, according to reports, this was published, I guess, on the West Coast before the East Coast of the US had seen the episode, or even in Europe, I think it goes out something like 2 in the morning US time, so for maybe people who live there and have an LA Times subscription, they might have seen it, so they might be aware of this particular uh, plot twist that, um, you know, from descriptions I see had people's jaws on the floor, so I don't know quite how staggering it was. Well, it was Monday know. night here, I'll, 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 say, I'll tell you that much, uh, Colin, it was Monday yeah. night here, all right? <laughs> well, the, the Times spokesperson, the LA Times, says, we understand that people who saw our story before they watched the episode may be upset, but we felt the character was so richly conceived that they deserved the proper send-off, and it was important to be part of the conversation in real time, and they claimed they didn't publish anything ahead of the events in the episode and minimise spoilers on their social media accounts. But, yeah, clearly judging by the, um, you know, the uh, rather colourful social media response, uh, some people still not at all happy with uh, with finding out that way through the LA Times. Now, we've only got two minutes to go, uh, Colin. We're heading to the news at 11, but uh, have you got time to talk about the Southland Times and the journalist who's left that uh, paper and founded his own news service? Yes. Uh, this is Logan Savory, who we featured on Media Watch. He... 
he left uh, stuff in the Southland Times. He set up a, a Substack, his uh, subscriber kind of email system. Mm. But every day on his own, uh, he's now passed 50 editions of local news. The Southland Tribune is the name. So it sounds like a masthead that's been around for 150 mm. years. But it's all him. And uh, when I interviewed him, I thought, how long can this really last? But he's really doing it. And also for some paying subscribers who support it and free stuff for everyone. Um, it's really good. Yeah, excellent stuff. And uh, is it the sort of stuff that you would see, I keep saying stuff, <laughs> that you would probably see covered in other outlets? I mean, would his former paper be publishing these items normally? Yeah, some of them, but he's had a couple of scoops. He had one uh, week before last about uh, Sir Tim Shadbolt getting admitted to hospital for respite care, and that was reported by other media, including RNZ's Midday Use, citing the Southern Tribune. He'd have loved that. He does a weekend edition solely focused on Southland sport, and all the sports staff mm-hmm. were cut from stuff's re- reporters in the region, so filling a gap there. He does Council Watch features, did stuff on that dramatic Gore Council uh, meltdown. So, no, he's really doing the business. So, well done, Logan. More than 50 up. Hope it continues the Southland Tribune. Fantastic. Well, Colin, great to chat with you and uh, look forward to your next episode on Sunday morning. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure we've got plenty in store for us then. Plunging lampposts permitting. Oh, yeah, indeed. Yeah, be careful as you ride home that the lamppost doesn't, <laughs> doesn't get you. Thanks for joining us. Colin Peacock there from Media Watch. He'll be back Sunday morning just after nine.